Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Bruce Booth. He's a partner with Atlas Venture, a firm that invests in seed and early stage biotech startups. Bruce Booth has made a name for himself the past few years as the author of the LifeSci VC blog. He writes about industry investment trends, the occasional news item from Atlas portfolio companies, and occasionally shines a light into the dark little corners of the venture capital business in a way only an insider can. There's nothing quite like it on the web. Bruce also likes his data. Like all scientists by training, he seeks to understand the world through data. The more the better and often through helpful charts and graphs for visualization. But the job of a VC has many aspects that aren't data-driven. Fundamentally, it's about matching up an exciting discovery or technology platform with the people who can develop it, people who can navigate the inevitably choppy seas ahead, and people aren't so easily reduced to data points. How do VCs evaluate the skills and character of people they are giving money to run things? Are there enough people out there with the right stuff to meet this exciting moment in science? And where do people get to hone their entrepreneurial skills? How can the industry do a better job of developing scientific entrepreneurs when companies don't seem to have much time for on-the-job training and everybody needs to deliver results ASAP? These are hard questions and ones that Bruce and I spent some time discussing. This is about building a thriving industry for the long haul. Now, before we dive in, a word from the sponsors of the long run. First up, Presage Biosciences. I talk with a lot of CEOs for the Timmerman Report, and it's clear all of them are under pressure to get clinical data as soon as humanly possible. Investors demand it, and patients deserve it. Phase one clinical trials have traditionally been the very first time that data from patients becomes available. And we all know that data from patients is what counts. Presage is working to improve this approach. They've been working on creating a way for researchers to obtain human data on investigational therapies a year or two before they could with a traditional phase one trial. The business is simple. They are working with biopharma companies to use their patented device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. And here's the thing. It lets researchers assess several drug candidates at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the patient. The device is being used in a clinical trial right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And did you know there are only two weeks until BioEurope Spring, the largest springtime partnering conference for biopharma? It's taking place in Amsterdam, March 12 to 14. This event brings together more than 2,500 high-level executives from pharma, biotech, and top VC firms to facilitate partnerships that drive drug development. There will be over 3,500 licensing opportunities, 15,000 one-on-one meetings, 100 company presentations, and programs and workshops featuring more than 60 of the leading industry experts speaking on relevant industry topics. Don't miss your chance to network and find your best fit partners. And special deal, use the code LONGRUN, all one word, and save 200 euros on your registration. I'll say that again. When you are registering for BioEurope Spring, type in the registration code LONGRUN, all one word, and save 200 euros on your registration. Next on the long run, Michael Gilman, 
He's a serial entrepreneur, currently running a pair of startups in parallel. One for controlled dosing of CAR-T immunotherapy for cancer, and another making small molecules directed at RNA targets. Gilman has gone through an interesting metamorphosis from a classic academic scientist into a scientific entrepreneur later in his career. Now, join me and Bruce Booth for The Long Run. Hi, I'm here at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference with Bruce Booth, partner at Atlas Venture. Welcome, Bruce, and thanks for being on The Long Run. Yeah, thanks for having me, Luke. So a lot of people listening to this are obviously familiar with your blog. You've been writing this for several years now. Uh, and I think it's been, uh, and I think I wrote this very early on that uh, this is, you're filling a, a, a void. There's a, there's a need for more venture capital commentary in the biotech space. It's been around in tech for a while, but nobody really does what you do, e- even today, I don't think. Uh, but it's great to have you here so people can hear your own voice and how you think about things. So um, maybe we can just start by uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from. For sure. So um, I guess starting off, Pennsylvania native, born and raised outside of Philadelphia, a town called Westchester. We um, uh, were in sort of horse country of the world, also uh, a lot of pharmaceutical industry down there. Uh, My dad was a physicist at DuPont. My mom was a school teacher. And, um, you know, we, one of three, um, three boys and and one sister, so one of uh, four kids. And uh, all of us sort of grew up with... uh, a real interest in biology, the natural world. Uh, my my dad and mom were both really keen on, um, you know, bringing us up, being well-rounded, uh, well-rounded individuals. And you know, we had a essentially a working farm growing up, um, garden, orchard, vineyard, bee beehives, all of those sorts of things. So huh. it was uh, just a, a fun way to to grow up there, rural. And so, what did your mom yeah. and dad do for a living? So my dad, being a, a physicist, worked down at the experimental station for DuPont, and uh-huh. so he worked in uh, optics and um, optical interconnections and such. And my mom was a school teacher, both in elementary school and middle school over time. Uh huh. And how many kids? Uh, four. So they're uh, I'm the third of, of four kids. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. So um, how did you get interested in science? Yeah. So really, as a um, young kid at an early age, my um, you know parents really. Um, pushed a real interest in biology and the natural world, how things work. Um, and, you know, I can remember my dad got uh, the early versions of genetic engineering news, um, even in the early 80s when it was just uh, just getting started. And so had a had a real interest in that through high school. In fact, my um, probably most impactful teacher and, and mentor that I had in, in high school was my AP biology teacher, um, really got me energized about science and about, uh, you know, the world of biomedicine in particular was just starting the, the understanding of early genetics in the 1980s was, uh, was an exciting time period. And so went off to Penn state as a, uh, state school, uh, um, state school university went there, was a biochemist there. Um, go big Ten. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a badger, you yeah. know? Oh, oh, yes. I forgot that. So, um, yeah, no, it was a great, uh, Penn State was great. It was, you know, a huge school, but there are lots of very uh, um, great ways to segment it. I did undergraduate research there um, and, you know, just a fun uh, a fun and exciting environment to grow up in. So this would have been 
early to mid nineties. Exactly. You're, you're in undergrad. You're, yep. you're and beginning to think biology is what you want to do for sure. So right away, um, started to major in molecular biology and biochemistry. Um, was doing research there actually on uh, um, some interesting transcription factors and RNA modifying enzymes as a uh, you know as an undergrad um, as part of my honors thesis. You know, published a um, a paper in that field right at the start of grad school, which was sort of helpful to already have some uh, some track record in science going into graduate school. So, um, Wait, so you published as an undergrad? I did, yeah. It was a really exciting piece of work on uh, an RNA-modifying enzyme that we had essentially discovered in the, in the lab. So. Okay, so you're showing some prodigal abilities there at, <laughs> no, what, 21 you know, or Honestly, two? it was probably more luck than anything else, but the uh, um, my second really important mentor in my life was uh, uh, the professor that sort of took me under his wing there, uh, Frank Pugh, and uh, learned a lot from him, you know, in the uh, way in which you think about scientific problems, um, and we explored some fun fun areas of science there. So, uh, No, you know what? A lot of people look at biotech and think, oh, this is dominated by all these people that went to Harvard and Stanford and such. And actually, there are a lot of people who come from these kind of non-traditional backgrounds, right? For uh, sure. State schools. Yeah. I, I just did an interview with David Shankine. He's a kid yeah. from Queens. Uh, nice. Med school, med school at SUNY Upstate yeah. in Syracuse. Yeah. Uh, you know, so how did you get like activated into this world uh, yeah. in, in biotech? So... I guess I would uh, I would say I, I got a reasonably lucky break in that out of Penn State, I got a Marshall Scholarship to go to Oxford. And the difference couldn't have been more profound, right? You have 50,000 of your close friends at Penn State, then you have a very small, I was at Trinity College at Oxford, which had about 400 students, worked up in the Institute of Molecular Medicine, which had just gotten put together um, outside of Oxford, did T-cell immunology work, um, but um, just a fantastic place very, very different, of course, from Penn State in its scale and in its history, for sure. Um, but out of that work, um, you know, McKinsey came along. And so McKinsey um, liked to recruit from Oxford and Cambridge and places like that and bring expats back to the U.S. And so I got a, essentially an offer I couldn't refuse. Went to McKinsey in 1999, um, sort of as the dot-com bubble was starting and the excitement of new, new tech and uh, and biotech, the early genomics sequencing of the human genome and those sorts of things were being done. Um, and they, uh, they, you know, I, I like to say that McKinsey was sort of a postdoc in business for me um, over about five years. Now, were you thinking like a lot of consultants out of grad school that, you know, I'll do this for a couple of years, I'll, I'll be, the, I'll do the postdoc sort of thing, yeah. learn it and then go do something else like work at a company or start a company? Yeah, no, I... Um, I certainly had that view. You know, while I loved my work in immunology and at the time in uh, grad school, we used to, um, you know, call it tumor immunology. It wasn't immuno-oncology, um, but, you know, 20 years later, it became kind of a hot field. Um, but the, the, you know, idea of laboring on the lab bench, you know, that was not uh, something I wanted to continue to do. So I really wanted to be at the business interface of science. And so McKinsey was a great platform for that learning strategy, learning business, um, business analytics and such. And so I assumed that I would be leaving McKinsey to, uh, um, in fact, I had my, my, my mindset on that early interface of business and science. And so I actually interviewed at a number of venture capital firms before getting to Atlas um, while I was at McKinsey. And in fact, 
um, got rejected from a number of them. So, um, funnily enough, uh, you know, you did the, the long run with Bob Moore. I had to chuckle to myself. Bob Moore was one of the first, my first interviews while I was at McKinsey at, uh, when he was a partner at domain and, uh, they didn't want me. <laughs> Venture capitalists <laughs> say no a lot. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, but, uh, you know, I, I knew I really wanted to get right at that interface of translational science, early science and business. And uh, in 2004, I had the opportunity to leave McKinsey um, with an experiment to try to create a venture fund in the context of a, of a hedge fund called Caxton Associates. Um, but within about a year of that, we'd done a couple investments. I got exposed to the team at Atlas and um, did an investment in a company called Next Stage Medical that made home hemodialysis equipment and... Uh, you know, um, ended up adding a lot of that, that company made uh, significant value to patients and eventually just got bought a few years ago. But, um, Jean-Francois was on the board there, my partner, Jean-Francois Formella. And, uh, he quickly said, why don't you just come join us up in Boston and, you know, do early stage venture properly. And, uh, that was August of 2005. So you were in New York at the time? I was. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how old were you when you get this? So 2005, I guess I was 31. Okay. And this is not a partner position. This, what is, no. what kind of position so is this? So I joined Atlas as a principal, uh -huh. um, which is sort of the layer um, right underneath partner. And at the time Atlas had, uh, we had offices in the US and Europe. We did both tech and biotech and we had multi layers of partner. Um, and you know, you fast forward 10 years, it's really amazing because we have one office mm -hmm. All we do is a biotech and we are a flat and equal partnership. And so essentially the transformation of Atlas from the mid 2000s, really until 2013, 2014 was, uh, was fairly profound. There were a lot of transformations in the venture business yeah, uh, during those years. Many of them went out of business completely. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, I think part of the reason it's helpful to, to walk through some of those steps for you, uh, well, I mean, I think people are interested in people's career journeys, like how do for they sure. end up where they are? Yeah. But, um, but also you raised, I think, a very interesting and provocative and kind of underappreciated point about um, talent development mm -hmm. in this industry in one of your most recent posts as you look ahead yep. at the year. That this is the, one of those things that kind of keeps you up at night. Uh, yep. Where are all the people going to come from to, sure. to run all these companies? We've yep. got this amazing bounty of science and technology that we're harvesting and it's ready to yep. go into series A and B kind of deals. Uh, but you need people like David Shankine and Michael Gilman uh, yep. to, to run these things. Yep. Um, where are the people coming from? No, it's, uh, this is, I think, one of the most important issues um, for our industry as a whole is the development, um, cultivation, um, and advancement of, you know, science leaders in biotech. And, you know, I think about our own portfolio you know, if we start six or so companies a year, it's roughly a 40 company portfolio today, 30 or 40. Um, there are a lot of um, C-level, you know, senior R&D people that we need and we're constantly recruiting for. But it is the rate limiter for us in terms of building and scaling these young companies. Most of our, um, you know, most of the C-level folks in our companies actually come out of larger pharmaceutical companies. And so we recruit heavily from um, pharma from big biotech um, and a you know a, a good number from other you know other people's biotech so to speak non-atlas companies only about a quarter of them 
are people like Mike Gilman, who've worked with us serially, worked in many companies. Um, and we would certainly love to continue to do that, but just the pool of serial entrepreneurs um, isn't, uh, isn't one that grows tremendously, just given the long timelines that they join a company and it usually takes you know, a handful of years to create the kind of value and excitement um, before you can recycle them, um, which is one of the reasons why um, you know, M&A is such a wonderful thing because you know, you're able to recycle talent in that process. I think Mike is a case study of this multiple times now. What are you guys looking for in the kind of profile or target profile of uh, you know, somebody who can run these small yeah. companies? Um, Given that most of our investments, and this probably goes for all early stage VCs, uh, most of our investments are really science first investments. And so they're drug discovery companies, they're working in a new modality, they're making a new gene therapy, those sorts of things. And so because of that, you have to have leaders who are attuned to the science of these companies. I think David Chenkine has used the phrase that, you know, science and R&D is the heart of most of these companies. And that is certainly true. Um, and so many of the leaders then come out of either R&D ranks or the business side, but they're very familiar with early stage science and its challenges, right? These are high, typically high risk projects. We know that only a certain number of things will ever make it to the clinic and then a certain number of those will, will end up making it to market. And there's a lot of pattern recognition in the type of entrepreneur that you'd like and executive you'd like to work with, pattern recognition around what are the signals early, those kind of call them program biomarkers that allow you to get the confidence to want to put in incrementally more and more investment over time? You know, the, the early hit finding process is in the single digit millions, lead optimization, mid single digit millions. And you know, as you move into preclinical, you know, informal GLP, IND enabling workers, more and more and more. And so because of that increase in investment, you really want to build um, increased confidence that allows you to want to put that capital to work with conviction and uh, leaders who've been there and done that, you know, they have the scar tissue on their back of other programs that they've run can help you with that. Be disciplined around these programs and really understand, hey, this is something that we need to double down on versus this is something where we probably need to pull back from. Um, and those are the kinds of leaders that, um, you know, with, with that kind of understanding. I'd say, with that in mind, the best leaders that we find, in addition to knowing all of that about science, are really um, culture champions of most of their companies. And so they need a, a certain um, EQ phenotype of being able to focus and build the culture of these young companies now. That can be a big platform company with where, where it has sort of an overt, explicit culture, or it could be small virtual team, but they all still have cultures and the CEO, C-level team um, are what really defines that. You're talking a lot about experience and scar tissue. Uh, this, this all equates with, you know, being around a long time, yeah. um, being older. Yeah. Um, you know, and, but you see, like, th this is not the way biotech always was. Um, you know, younger people uh, shook things up um, yeah. previously, uh, but it's harder for the young people to, uh, to get these kind of breaks. Yeah. Um, why, what, are, what's missing here? Why are we having a hard time kind of on ramping? Yeah, no, it's a great, uh, it's a great question. Our, our average, the average age of an entrepreneur at the, at the C level, those types of entrepreneurs, um, 
are in their mid 40s to mid 50s in our portfolio. So that is certainly the case. Um, a handful of them will be in their late 30s when they um, you know take on those types of leadership roles. The that's not to say that you know people in their postdocs can't find roles in these companies. Um, they do, but they're just not running the company. Um, I think you know as different from the tech world where you know the the software you know the the young entrepreneur with a new idea for software can often be the founding CEO and run those businesses. That tends not to be the case in the in the drug business. And why do you think that um, is? You know, I think I think there's an experience uh, there's an experience gap there of you know being a postdoc doing really cool academic work is very different than running you know an integrated drug discovery you know early development enterprise um, you know it's uh, you know the challenges of multidisciplinary um, integration that has to happen there everything from chemistry and biology but to PK admi tox translational medicine um, that is a uh, you know, it's just a much broader and more complex, you know, business apparatus that you need in early stage R&D. Um, you know, there are certainly examples of, uh, of younger CEOs who've sort of founded companies in their 20s and gone off and been successful. But I'd say most of the time today, um, you know, first time CEOs in their late 30s, early 40s, even early 50s um, can have a huge impact. But most of them come to the table with some R&D or pharmaceutical experience. I think about Nick Leshley, for instance, a good example, he'd probably spent 15 years or so in the context of Millennium and elsewhere before he became CEO over there at Bluebird. Yeah. So I don't think you necessarily need to come straight out of a postdoc and become a CEO, wear a hoodie and, you know, make (laughs) make a TEDx return for Bruce. I mean, maybe that works once in a while and makes the cover of a magazine for tech companies. But um, I, I mean, I think there needs to be a, a, a good, well-oiled machine for people to come out of the graduate schools and yep. find a place where they can, you know, expand their repertoire. For sure. Really learn. For sure. Uh, like, sort of like a, a, a postdoc for business, like yeah. you were saying, like yeah. McKinsey was and, for you. And this certainly, um, in larger platform companies, there are certainly opportunities for that. Um, you know, companies in our own portfolio, like Magenta, which are rapidly scaling, Unum, companies like this, you know. Younger scientists can have a role on those teams, can join them, and can learn the art of, uh, of you know, drug discovery and development for sure. I think one of the things that's interesting is in our portfolio, about half of the companies are more virtual. And so when you have virtual companies, um, there, are, there are a lot less opportunities for sort of learning on the job and those types of things. And so take Padlock as an example. Um, I know you know Mike Gilman well. You know, Padlock had five or six people in that company, and all of them were skilled in the various um, disciplines that they were a part of. They've all got to be A players when yeah, you have a virtual Exactly. Company. You just don't have a lot of you know room for training on the job around that. And so um, I do think as virtual companies in biotech um, continue, and I think there are some assets that are better done virtually, and there are some assets that are better done as broader you know platform companies. Um, it does pose questions of where is that talent going to come from? Um, even more, you take medicinal chemistry today. You know, most major uh, pharmaceutical companies have cut their, um, you know, the brawn, so to speak, of the medicinal chemists in the hood that are making molecules have cut those and have expanded in uh, places like China. Um, and so, how do you become a great leader of chemistry here in Boston, for instance, if no one is, uh, you know, 
playing with solvents and hoods as part of their um, growth process. And I think that's a real, a real question that both the pharmaceutical industry needs to, to wrestle down, but uh, you know, biotech needs to, needs to think about too. And I honestly don't know the answer because, you know, right now, um, you know, the vast majority of drug discovery programs have some virtual component to partners in places like China and India and, uh, um, frankly, around the world on a CRO basis. It's really interesting to think about this in an intentional way, because I don't think the industry in its founding days, I mean, it'd be nice to go back and interview Bob Swanson, but I kind of doubt that he was thinking about yeah. like developing an entire generation of human capital that would then run these yeah. companies. Maybe he did, but um, it, it did work out that way. They yeah. had this amazing culture and there were others, first generation companies Amgen, Biogen, you know, yep. Genetics Institute in Boston area, where people really did. They just got thrown in and they had this great challenging scientific culture. They expanded on what they learned from academia and they grew yep. up into become leaders. And then the industry got to a point where it um, it tapped a lot of these people. Yep. And, and now here we are at the cusp of all this great science and technology. And here's Ruth Booth saying, man, I've I've shaken the pharma tree. I'm shaking the bio, big biotech tree. There's not a whole lot of fruit left to fall yeah. fall down on these startups. I mean, fortunately, uh, um, you know, they they continue to invest as a whole. But I do think there is a broader question. A lot of those early companies were all aspiring to be fully integrated um, drug R and D organizations and eventually commercialized products. There is a proliferation of other business models today. Some that are just doing drug discovery. Some that are more virtual, some that are, you know, spec pharma repurposing older assets, and they, um, that that diversity of business models, um, you know, also changes the context for how talent can be applied in those companies. But if you took a poll of C-level folks in Boston's newest crop of biotechs, I think you'd see a few things. You'd see the signature of some of the great anchor tenants of Boston. Um, alumni. Mm -hmm. So Biogen, Genzyme, Vertex, Millennium, you'd see a lot of people who were trained and their pedigree reflects that those companies. And you'd also see in particular in the in the Boston market, we've recruited heavily from New York or from New Jersey and uh, in the Philadelphia region. And so you'd see a lot of ex-Merck executives that have moved up, you know, Pfizer and Wyeth executives that have moved up um, and um, entered the biotech scene here in, in Boston. And so, you know, a lot of that talent import um, into the Boston market has, uh, has happened in the last 10 years or so. Presage Biosciences has a microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. Why does this matter? It enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the patient. It's in clinical trials now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And Bio Europe Spring is only two weeks away, coming up March 12 to 14 in Amsterdam. It's the premier spring partnering event in Europe, bringing together 2,500 pharma and biotech executives and VCs. Listeners of this show are welcome to a special deal. Get this, when you register for Bio Europe Spring, just type in long run, all one word, as the discount registration code to take 200 euros off. I'll say that one more time. Type in long run, all one word, when you register for Bio Europe Spring and get 200 euros off. 
then go out there and do the deal your company needs to get to the next level. We also have an issue with gender and ethnic diversity. There's yeah. a lot of white males on boards. And, and as you probably saw at uh, the JP Morgan conference. Yes, <laughs> yes, they are. Uh, yes. <laughs> they're not in short supply. Um, so but there's obviously a lot of human capital yep. uh, to be tapped there. Uh, sure. we, we, ha- we don't have the same uh, pipeline feeder problem in biotech that there is in, say, tech. Half of the people entering at lab bench sure. kind of scientific jobs are women. Yeah. Um, and they fall off the rails in, when it comes to upper management at some point along the way. Yeah. What What are your thoughts on how to um, improve? Because, I mean, that would be one obvious place For sure. to look. I mean, the you mentioned two things. One, um, cr- sort of careers of, of how um, talent moves up the ranks. And then the separate issue, I think, is the board issue, which we can, we can come to. But... You know, as we re- if we're recruiting out of VP level ranks in, you know, pharma, when we work with search firms and come up with a long list, invariably they're dominated by men rather than women because a lot of the big pharma substrate, you know, the VP level, almost all of them are men. Um, and so I think there is a problem in what happened when 50-50 PhD, you know, gender balance roughly might even be slightly higher than that for, for female candidates. And, you know, 15 years later, when they're becoming exec directors or VPs, you know, it's far, far less than that. Um, I think that's probably where we as an industry need to focus on keeping, retaining um, and developing talent, um, you know, in order to, to solve that. Because I think that pipeline itself, um, you know, reflects that's probably where most of the attrition occurs in, uh, you know, the mid 30s is my guess. Uh Uh um, on the board side you know i think this is where um, all of us could a do a better job we are consciously working on this at atlas Um, we're by no means um, you know the 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 problem isn't solved but we're trying Um, you know we're we're aggressively recruiting independent board members to be uh, you know a part of our young biotech companies at an early age and uh, we think a it's good to have independence and b a great opportunity to work with, um, you know, men and women who um, can add a lot of value to these young companies. So. What about women in venture? Yeah, there's a huge, uh, huge imbalance there, both on the tech side and the biotech side. Um, and, you know, I think part of the part of the challenge is venture is such a small cottage industry. Um, but I think, again, we can all do a better job there. Um, and we actively talk about it. Um, as we're recruiting new team members, you know, we've generally had a, um, um, a good track record at Atlas of hiring folks and becoming partners, um, myself being one of those who've sort of worked their way through. And so we are consciously um, having the discussion of how do we make sure that we have enough female candidates, for instance, in our associate pool and such, um, you know, to be able to develop into future partners. This is one of those long-term problems. I don't think anyone expects it to be solved overnight, yeah. but um, it does require constant vigilance. For sure. You know, I think even like in my own role, um, I quote people in stories, and often the first three or four people that I think of that are experts on an issue are white males. Yeah. And I have to force myself to ask that next question. Do I know a woman who I can call on this? Yeah. Um, often, you know, 
this person will take my call is every bit the expert of those first four people that I thought of. Yeah. Um, and it just, yeah, but part of the, you know, and especially C-level recruits where we may use a search firm is just demanding that those slates have, you know, more, you know, gender balance on them. Um, for all of the, uh, executive recruiters that I've worked with, they know that I have been asking this for, you know, the last several years of, I want to see more female candidates on these rosters, whether they're for CEOs, CSOs, other C-level execs or, or for board roles. So, mm-hmm. um, really, really important. Let's talk about a couple of other things that worry you that keep you up all night. Then we can get turn to sure. more optimistic stuff. Yeah. Um, it, there's been a lot of money. Yeah. That's gone into yeah. the sector. Sometimes I, I worry about there being too much money. Yeah. Um, I, I remember the financial crisis and I remember how some really good companies were uh, baptized by fire. I'm thinking an Agios, a Bluebird, yep. uh, companies that came out in that, that next wave of IPOs in 13, 14, 15. Those were some yep. pretty good years. And they were disciplined. Yep. They, they didn't know where their next dollar was going to come from. And now something like you said the other day, a billion dollars has already been invested in the first 10 days of 2018. Yeah. St- staggering amount of capital is flowing into the sector and in particular into the, you know, private biotech sector. Um, last year, I think PitchBook said something like the global number is in the 12 to 16 billion range. I mean, that's just an enormous amount relative to where it was five years ago. Um, and so the positives of that, a lot of great ideas are being funded. A lot of companies are able to create more options for themselves by working on more things or, you know, powering up their clinical programs to be bigger and broader and more significant, which is good for patients. And so all of that is the positive. The, the fear I have, and one of the things that does keep me up at night is, is there too much capital sloshing around? Does it reduce the discipline that's required to make these high-risk early investments? And then secondly valuations start to move up extensively when you have um, such a uh, such a flood of capital. And will we get out, uh, to use a ski reference, will we get out over our skis on valuation, um, which, you know, with any hiccup then leads to challenges to happen. And so there's a large cohort of companies that have raised capital at significant valuations now that, you know, will, their next step will be to access the public markets, for instance. Um, I am hopeful. I am reasonably, you know, optimistically confident that the public markets have got the right depth to the, uh, um, you know, the, the the capital markets overall. That um, this wave of companies, a large number of them, will get public over the next, you know, six, twelve, eighteen months. Um, but if they're not there, and if some of those late stage investors disappear, um, you're going to see, you know, companies who've overcapitalized um, and overcapitalized companies, you know. It's it's you know, the same as losing your money when science goes bad and the and you shut down the company is if you've overcapitalized and there's a hiccup and you get um, wiped out as an early stage investor and so it's a real uh, a real concern of mine as as capital has flooded into the sector. Well, you at Atlas have purposely tried not to raise too much money, right? I mean, your current fund is something like 285 million. You yep. like to do a lot of Series A's that are in the 30 million dollar range. Yep. It seems not. 300 million. Yeah. Um, that's a big denominator yeah. uh, to take a company public on. For sure. You've got to get a very big valuation to get the kind of multiple yep. you want. Yeah. Now, our general strategy, um, and it has been this way for you know, multiple funds now, is a seed-led venture creation model that re- sort of relies on the concept of capital efficiency. So 
you mentioned companies that were sort of uh, forged in the time period when discipline was important, Agios and things like that. I think that was a $33 million Series A. Mm -hmm. And so, and it was tranched. I think there were two or three pieces to it. So all of our financings tend to be tranched. There tends to be a seed component that might involve validating the science or it might involve business building aspects during that seed phase before they've sort of earned the right to the next check and the next piece of capital comes in and helps the company grow. But it's that incremental de-risking um, and confidence building that allows you to deploy that capital in an efficient way because you're creating value the whole time. I worry when you see companies raising significantly more than what they need to create um, the right you know, optionality and opportunity set um, because a lot of that could end up being um, you know, overcapitalized at valuations that aren't sustainable. Um, you, know, you wanna raise enough so that you're not anorexic as well as a biotech company. There's nothing worse than having you know, great opportunities to work on, but no capital to do it. And so it's a fine line and you only really know whether you hit the right you know, local optimum in, in hindsight, but I think uh, that mantra of capital efficiency is still very much an important part of successful early stage investing. We also see a lot of new faces coming into the early stage game. I mean, a few years ago we saw the crossover investors come in, yeah. some went away, but now there's China investors um, yep. that I don't necessarily recognize on first glance. Um, who, um, who do you look to syndicate with, partner with? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, most of our, if you take sort of the 10 or 15 year view, our fund seven, which was in 2006, January 2006, um, that fund largely syndicated with what you would call normal VCs. Um, and, you know, Polaris, um, TRV with, uh, with Safgen, Abingworth, you know, companies like that. Um, they're here to stay. They're here to stay. In 2009, we raised um, our eighth fund. It was also a time period when a lot of people pulled out of early stage investing. And so almost all of our co-investors became corporate VCs. Um, and that held true in fund nine, which was our 2013 vehicle. And so corporate VCs, at least at that early moment, were still our um, you know, most active um, partners on seed and series A syndication. They were like um, a ballast for the, the shaky they uh, were really, period. They were important partners to have. Um, and it was especially true because we were investing out of, you know, we were diversified in tech and biotech at the time. So our biotech pool of capital was still very constrained. And so as, as partners who provided both capital and some of the pharma connectivity, they were super helpful. And then in um, 2015, we raised Fund 10, um, it was a essentially similar size fund, as you mentioned, the $280 million fund, but it was all for biotech. And so we had more capital to work. Um, and so we've syndicated some of our seeds and series A's less, and we've done more of those. Um, you know, last week we, uh, we announced you know, Generation Bio, which we've essentially done all of ourselves in the, in the series A time period. Um, greater risk, greater reward. Exactly. And so you're, you're able to optimize for ownership and really uh, um, putting the, the companies onto the right path during that Series A, which we can, we can drive. So um, our syndication has changed and that some of our Series A partners and Series B partners look a lot more like, you know, the Orbimeds of the world and, uh, um, you know, Sofanova and other, and other companies. And so um, in a lot of ways, I think the corporate VC model um, is evolving 
because some of the the need back when capital and early stage partners were scarce, um, CVCs were the partner of choice. And today, I'd say that the uh, um, you know the model has evolved quite a bit. Corporate venture is still a really important part of our ecosystem, and we certainly do syndicate with them. But I think the strategic component to it is probably playing more of an important role than it did, you know, five to you know six years ago. You you guys see yourselves, uh, you know, this is kind of a fashionable term, but the uh, venture creation. Yeah, I mean, you're creating companies. For sure. And not many, not all VC firms, not very many actually do that. I mean, there's some that really are writing checks yep. and and syndicating kind of along for the ride. Uh, others, you know, that roll up the sleeves and actually try to like work out that white space. Like what actually is the problem? And can we, do we have some novel biology to, to, yep. uh, and chemical matter we can pair with it? <laughs> that yep. This is where you guys like to be. Yeah. For um, sure. So um, who, who else does this well? Yeah. I mean, the whole venture creation aspect, again, this is another fascinating historical change of, you know, in the mid 2000s, it was pretty rare, you know, even for us to want to incubate in-house. Some of our earliest incubated companies were, you know, Stromedics with Mike and, uh, and Zafchen and the, the uh, model of seeding, incubating, co-founding companies in your office was about a third of what we did. And then by Fund 8 in 2009, it became, you know, 60, 70%. And uh, more recently, it's essentially the vast majority of what we do, like 90 plus percent of our companies we either seed, um, found, or incubate in our offices. And right now, I think in our office, we must have 40, 40 or so entrepreneurs working across eight to 10 companies. You know, the investment team at Atlas is 10 people. And so we're surrounded by entrepreneurs doing, um, you know, real work, as I like to say. You don't have people yeah. just coming in and giving you pitches. That's exactly the point. Is It has changed fundamentally in the you know, early, mid 2000s, you'd, you'd get pitches, you'd get series A decks, people come and pitch you an idea. That very rarely happens today, at least for our firm. Um, I'd say, you know, Third Rock, Flagship, um, you know, Column Group, they're also doing the venture creation model with, you know, various riffs off of the theme, but in general, starting companies to be science first, you know, high impact companies where you play a big role in them. Um, we, like uh, like some of those other firms, We'll take acting operating roles in companies, you know, be the acting CEO for the first 18 months or so to get it off the ground, to be able to put enough meat around the bones to attract someone to come and jump into those companies. And so that's a, um, you know, an important part of it. Many times those are incubating in our office during that period. So it's a walk down the hall. It's not, um, and this gets to the, the local nature of the venture creation business. You can't really do this if you're investing all over the country, for instance because you're just too far from the startups that you're helping to create. And so I think the, um, the, tr the consolidation into places like Boston and San Francisco that we've seen within the venture industry, talent, capital, returns aggregating into certain geographies is a, um, you know, is a reflection of some of these changes to the, the biotech startup formation model. Well, you've got these entrepreneurs and residents who they're literally just down the hall. Yeah. Uh, you can check in on them. They can ask you a question. Um, I'm, sure they, it's, it's very... I'm sure they love it. I can walk down and ask them. <laughs> you can look over <laughs> their shoulder, right? Um, but but seriously, I mean, um, I actually heard your partner, Jason Rhodes, at a Seed Capital Forum on Sunday, I believe, here at the conference. And he was talking about this EIR model and how um, you try to incent truth-seeking behaviors. 
Yeah. And, and I thought that was an interesting phrase, like that, that basically um, you, you work on a project, you're trying to reproduce some, say, interesting biology coming out of academia, and you're trying to, you're like, uh, uh, you know, determine, is this true? And if it's not, the project dies and the person doesn't lose their job. They, their, their whole life isn't wound up and attached to this program. They, you know, it fails. They proved it was wrong. And then they go on to the next. And uh, that way, you know, you've only blown a million dollars, maybe, um, yep. as opposed to losing a lot more. No, that's exactly right. Truth-seeking behaviors and getting a group of like-minded entrepreneurs who share that view. I mean, fundamentally, it's a, it's putting more value on time, right? The entrepreneur's time and a great entrepreneur's time is the scarcest resource in a startup. And so if they're afraid that they might not have you know, a salary or they might um, lose their job because they're going to recommend terminating a program or terminating the, the platform, you know, that just creates a whole bunch of perverse um, survival instincts that might count, be counter to the discipline of you know, good science-led R&D. And so by creating that community aspect to this of help us make a great decision, truth seek, We'll be able to deploy your time onto other projects. We'll be able to deploy our capital onto other projects. And so we have done that very well over the last few funds, um, both at the seed level. So the half a million to a million, um, you know, roughly a third or so of our seeds um, in the last, you know, on average over the last uh, um, three funds end up not moving on to series A's. We'll shut them down. Um but even in the Series A, I mentioned we tranche most of those. So you have first tranche, second tranche, third. Good discipline of being able to really look at those as points for proof that we are de-risking these. And I think you know um, in the fall, um, we shut down Quartet Medicine. This was a company where um, really um, fascinating area of science and neuropathic pain, a particular novel mechanism that had some human genetic um, lampposts around it. Um, and a great team, in fact, a fantastic drug discovery team. But an unexpected late tox signal in preclinical showed up in August. Um, we still had a third tranche of capital. We could have put in. We could have just said, let's hammer through this. But the management team um, came to us and said, actually, we think the odds of success here have gone down so far that we'd be threading this tiny needle, and it's really unlikely to work. Um, and it was the kind of truth-seeking behavior that we want instead of us then trying to chase it for a few years. Um, we ended up shutting it down and that entire team has found its way into other Atlas um, companies, whether they're new seeds we're working on, some of them joined existing other companies in our portfolio. And I think that aspect to sort of community entrepreneurship within the Atlas uh, network is uh, hugely enabling from a talent recruitment perspective. Well, it makes some logical sense in a business where you know 80 or 90% of things are gonna fail yeah. Um, why would you go around like pretending that everything's always working, For sure. uh, giving pitches that everything's yeah. always sunny yeah. side up? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it erodes credibility yeah. uh, over time. And, you know, you uh, talk like it's, it's strange to uh, have this sort of badge of dishonor when something fails. People are ashamed of it and, yeah. and try to hide it. You're, you even said at the Wuxi Forum, I think that, you know, most venture investments like or 
venture capitalists bury their dead at night. Yes, they, for sure. They love sure. They love to crow about their wins yep. and pretend that those black holes like never happened. Yes, a guy like me calls them like, "Oh, did we invest in that?" Gosh, I silently barely, hope barely that Luke that. doesn't find out about it to write an article about the the failed company. Why? I mean, that that's <laughs> no, the normal look, course of business. I totally agree, and I think, frankly, if we were more transparent about those failures, there'd be a lot of lessons learned around it. Of you know, what went wrong? How do we learn from it? You know, how, what was the, the scientific thesis? Was there something wrong with the thesis? Was there, you know, just a casualty of R&D? Was it capital structure? You know, all of those types of things I think are um, unable to be discussed without more transparency on this. And as you know, that's one of the things that uh, I've tried to do with the blog is shine a little bit of a light of transparency into the opaque world of, of venture capital. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious, how does that affect some of your relationships with um, the people on the other side? And I'm thinking like the big pharma companies that you might be selling these portfolio companies to. You call up a, a Jay Bradner or at Novartis or an, uh, Andy Plump at uh, yeah. Takeda or a Rupert Vesey at Celgene and say, do they know like, wow, if, if this has been de-risked, it's run through the ringer at Atlas, yep. um, you know, Yep. This is something that they can count on, that it's at least come as far as you say it's come. Yeah. No, I, look, I think um, as a firm, um, Atlas, and uh, I would uh, give a lot of credit to Jean-Francois and Peter, who were you know partners before uh, I got there. JF actually set up the, the healthcare practice. They established a reputation for doing you know high caliber science first investing. Um, it's been great to continue to build that kind of reputation and storefront over the last 12 years around science first and focus on data positioning around um, the boundaries that the data allows you to. And I think most people in, in pharma who we have generally good relationships with across the, the pharmaceutical industry respect that. Um, and uh, you know, Jay made some comments about that at the Wuxi Forum yesterday of you know, really focusing on science and the scientists, leaders who are driving them. Mm -hmm. So... Let's talk a little bit about yeah. the science. This is the this is the fun part. Yes, indeed. indeed. <laughs> you know, there's all these yeah. different modalities coming out. Yeah. I mean, you started. You're working in neuroscience now. I mean, sure. what uh, what excites you? Yeah, I mean, there's just so much to get excited about that that could be uh, hours and hours of, of of a podcast at some point. But the uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I find most fascinating is just the field's total. Um, eruption in cell and gene therapies, right? Um, I made the comment that, you know, it really took Novartis to catalyze the CAR-T space um, because academics have been working on it for literally over two decades, right? The first paper was in 1989. Um, and yet, because there was no real clinical success until very late, you know, 2009, 2010, 2011 was when clinical success started to show up. In a few isolated anecdotes, exactly as Carl June reflected recently, if yeah. that one patient, Emily Whitehead, if she had died, the whole story could have played out differently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk about a knife's edge business, and it yeah. goes all the way to the FDA approval. Novartis yeah. gets involved, and now they're, you See, know, uh, the floodgates of venture capital I mean, it's have truly opened up. amazing. I mean, and even you think about the Spark uh, AV therapy, the Avexis data, um, you know, the Bluebird data. Um, and we, we more recently have invested in a company called Abrobio, which is also in the Lenti transplant business, some fantastic data in Fabry. Um, you know, cell therapies in general. Magenta is a company in our portfolio that I'm really excited about using essentially bone marrow transplants to cure you of autoimmune disease. You think about your uh, 
autoimmune disease is sort of your immune system attacking itself. Well, what if you could get rid of the current immune system and transplant it with a new one? And that new one evolves to not have that um, self-reacting immune system. So some great data in MS and scleroderma recently showing that bone marrow transplants can cure those diseases. I mean, this is a whole new way of thinking about therapies when curative intent is how you're, uh, um, you know, focused on it. Of course, there are other innovations that need to happen with that around pricing, around delivery. You know, a lot of the cell therapies require manipulation. How are we going to do that? But, you know, the first generation companies like Kite and Juno and Novartis are helping solve some of these. And I'm sure there will be a wave of other innovations around this that occurs over the next five to 10 years. But I'd be surprised if in a decade there weren't um, a significant number of these cell and gene therapy plays that uh, had gotten commercial and really material presence. Um, the, on the flip side, taking conventional modalities like pills, I also think there's really exciting things and rifts around old, you know, the, the, the old pill in a bottle of, uh, you know, ways of drugging targets using allosteric regulation um, or, you know, RNA binding small molecules uh -huh. um, or protein, targeted protein degradation. So these heterobifunctional molecules that are able to sort of identify a target inside of a cell and degrade it. Um, these types of modalities, um, I think, offer enormous promise. And so I'm super excited about the state of those fields as well. And even like, what about less glamorous things like, like bispecific antibodies, yeah. antibody drug conjugates? I mean, people have been talking for about sure. those for years, but, you know, yeah. slow, steady, behind the scenes progress yeah. occurring. There. There's some great progress in those spaces. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that excites me so much. You know, 15 years ago, antibodies were barely on the scene commercially. Um, you know, all, almost all, if not all of the top 10 drugs were all small molecules. You know, today that's vastly different. A lot of them are antibodies. Um, and who knows what it's going to be in 15 years. But uh, we, we as an industry have placed lots of diverse bets across a number of these different modalities. And, you know, I think if we focus on patients and transforming the life of patients, you know, any one of these modalities could end up being the right solution. And, you know, imagine a world where a pharma company was essentially modality agnostic, focused on a patient's particular needs. We're not quite there yet. A lot of pharma companies have biases of which modalities they like or ones that they're willing to experiment in. You know, the, the common debate today is in the, you know, immuno-oncology space, will you go intratumoral with your injection or does it have to be systemic? Does it have to be a therapy like that? And, you know, I suspect we're all going to look back at these questions and sort of um, laugh that, you know, these were the things we were thinking about, um, you know, 10 years ago. That, might, that won't take yeah. very long to sort out, I yeah. don't think. Yeah. Um, what's one thing that people are talking about here at the conference that you think is maybe overrated, overhyped, not quite ready for prime time? So that's a good, uh, that's a good question. I'd say, uh, I have not in, in full disclosure, I have, um, not actually attended the meeting itself. Almost all of my meetings have been, um, you know, group sessions with pharmaceutical companies, you know, here at JP Morgan, we don't see new pitches. Um, as you said, pitches, uh, have sort of gone away anyway. Um, we do a lot of networking with entrepreneurs or potential executives we'd like to recruit, and we meet with pharma companies and go over our portfolios. So I've had a lot less exposure to sort of the latest and greatest, um, you know, hype out of you know young public companies, for instance, at the at the conference. So I probably can't put my finger on 
something like that. Okay. We'll ask you that at another conference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, what um, last thing I want to ask, Bruce. Um, so I think a lot of people have kind of feel like they got to have gotten to know you a bit through your blog. You share a little bit of some personal stuff, like you like to go yeah. skiing and you, yeah. you infuse some ski metaphors in your last uh, Indeed. article. I help myself. What, what, what's one thing, you know, and, and you probably get buttonholed at this conference, like people probably recognize you on the street, right, because yeah. of this. What what's one thing that people uh, don't uh, don't know about you? Little known fact. Yeah. Little known fact. Um, well, it's a little riff off of the ski theme, which is I'm an adaptive sports coach. So I am uh, a volunteer coach with New England Disabled Sports at Loon, um, and we take students with disabilities, a broad range of cognitive and uh, and physical disabilities. You know, help them learn how to ski, help them get down the mountain. And I have to say, I started doing this a year ago. It has really been life-changing for me um, and really brings sort of full circle work that I do, you know, in, in helping create new medicines with a real passion of mine, which is, of course, snow sports on the mountain. And, uh, you know, the, the intersection of those um, is just incredibly rewarding. You know, I've taken students with Duchesne's, boys with Duchesne's out skiing, MS, you know, a lot of uh, um, cerebral palsy, um, you know, more recently. I even uh, um, had a student with uh, Prater Willie, which, as you know, we've uh, um, been working actively on at, uh, at Zafgen. So it's been a really great fusion of my personal passions and, uh, and my, my work interests. And it's a great way to step outside that Kennel Square bubble. It can, <laughs> yes. get, can get a little uh, sure. insidery at times. For sure. Um, and I, I the told, mountain air is very good for that. Well, yeah, you know, and I mean, this is something we have in common. I mean, I'm, uh, I feel the same way about combining the passions and, and, and stepping out of that normal um, network uh, yeah. with, with my Everest climb. And um, I think it's just so wonderful to give back. And, and it's like, writing thank you notes to people who give to your campaign. It's like the best thing I do all day. For sure. Um, So thank you, Bruce, for what you do. Thanks for being here on The Long Run. Yeah. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to Presage Biosciences and EBD Group for sponsoring. Next on the long run, Michael Gilman. How does one transform from a classic academic scientist into a scientific entrepreneur, one who seeks to build teams that can apply basic science? Hear him talk about his journey on the next episode. And thanks for listening to The Long Run. Tell your friends about it on your favorite podcast app or on social media. That's how people hear about the show. See you next episode.